Well, how do you pray for someone who is suffering? Of course, suffering has a thousand faces, but for someone walking through the midst of suffering, how do you, how do you pray for that person? What, what requests do you take to the Lord on their behalf? Well, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning, verses 11 and 12, and these, these verses, we have to hear the whole instruction of these verses as Paul's prayer for a suffering community. So in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. In fact, most of the first chapter, Paul is talking about their afflictions. He's talking about their suffering. So if you go back to Acts 17, where the gospel first comes to the city of Thessalonica, tells us that from the very beginning, when Paul was preaching the gospel in this city, the, the Jewish leaders and the pagan authorities had, had kind of formed an alliance against the Christians, these, these people who turned the world upside down. They formed this protest movement, and, and the, the pagan authorities, the Jewish leaders, end up dragging innocent Jason from his home to court simply for housing Paul and Silas, giving them a place to stay while they were in the city. So the Christians in Thessalonica experienced social social pressure from the first day of believing the gospel. The headlines in Thessalonica would have been decidedly against Christian belief and against Christian morality. For all sorts of reasons, the Jews... And the authorities in the city wanted to shame the Christians into oblivion. But despite all this opposition, the Christian community in this city was flourishing. So in 2 Thessalonians, Paul begins by giving thanks for them. He says, your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. The opposition wanted to stamp them out, and yet their faith and their love were flourishing. Circumstantially, these people are being crushed, but spiritually, they are thriving. And it's in this situation that Paul prays for them. So 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12, this is Paul's prayer for a suffering community. And this is how he prays. To this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good. And every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you in him. According to the grace of our God. And the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice three aspects of Paul's prayer in these verses. First, his requests are immediate. His requests for this community are immediate. Second, his vision is eternal. And third, his confidence is God's kindness. His confidence is God's kindness. So, First of all, his requests are immediate. So notice there at the beginning of verse 11 that he prays to this end, or we might say with this in mind. 
He's referring to the afflictions that they are experiencing. In light of the oppositions you are facing, this is how we pray for you. So his prayers for them are aimed at the immediate situation that they are in. These requests address their in-the-moment need. And he mentions two requests. First, that God may make you worthy of his calling. His first request for them, that God may make you worthy of his calling. So God has called them. This indicates God's selection of these Christians. His voice has called out to them in particular, and they have heard and responded to his voice. Paul later tells them, that he gives thanks for them because, this is chapter 2, God chose you from the beginning as the first fruits to be saved. God chose them. And God chose them with the specific purpose of saving them from his wrath against their sin. This, this is God's calling. And now Paul adds to that idea of calling that God may make you worthy of his calling. So if God's calling means to be saved from his wrath, then we all are evidently unworthy of that calling. We don't deserve salvation. And yet, Paul prays here that they would become worthy of the salvation that they are not worthy of. He is asking that God would make them worthy of all that it means to be a Christian. Worthy of being called sons and daughters of God. Worthy of of the love that took Jesus to the cross. Yes, God, to make them worthy. But how is it that they could be made worthy? How, How will this happen? Well, Paul actually explains the idea of being made worthy earlier in verse 1, in, uh, earlier in uh, chapter 1, in verse 5. He says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So in God's estimation, they would be considered worthy of his kingdom because of their suffering. Through suffering, they were being made fit for the kingdom of God. They were being made to look more like Jesus, the one who saves them. Because Jesus, the Son of God, Son that God loved completely, Jesus was not even exempt from suffering. In fact, Hebrews 5.8 tells us that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And then Hebrews 12 David mentioned in his prayer goes on to say that for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross thinking nothing of the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus suffered and Jesus was made worthy through his obedience in the midst of suffering. He he was made worthy He was perfected, Hebrews says, through his obedience in the midst of suffering. And this is exactly what Paul is praying for all these brothers and sisters in Christ. He is praying that, in a sense, they would become worthy of salvation through their obedience in the midst of great affliction. 
What's the most discouraging circumstance in your life right now? Is there some temptation that you keep giving into? Some temptation, it's like it's convincing you that failure is your forte? Or some relationship where it seems like reconciliation is just completely out of reach no matter how hard you try? What's the gr- greatest frustration to your spiritual growth? Because this is, this is certainly going to be an area in which God wants to make you worthy of his calling. You know, like the bride getting her dress tailored for the wedding day. God is fitting you through that circumstance for the salvation that he has called you to. The fitting process demands patience for him to complete the work. But the tailor is good and he will achieve a perfect fit. And perhaps more to the point of this passage, how do you pray for someone else who is walking through suffering? Well, pray as Paul does, that God would complete his work. You know, if God is in process with a person, in process making them worthy of his calling, pray that God would achieve all of his good purposes for them, even if painful. You know, what the person in the midst of suffering needs is this. To know that God is good and in light of God's goodness to press on in faith and obedience towards God. In other words, the greatest need of the person in the midst of suffering is exactly the same as the greatest need of the person in the sunshine of life. There is no difference. You know, it's tempting to think that in the midst of suffering we need something different some secret resolution to the pain, or some superhuman strength to endure it. But actually, one of God's gracious purposes in suffering is to remind us of our weakness and our frailty and our need of Him, to have an awareness of those things with fresh sensitivity, and thus to lead us to wholly rely on Him and to proceed in obedience through faith. So we need, in the midst of suffering, a deep awareness of the salvation that we have been called to, you know, the joy set before us, and then to press on towards that joy, to strive towards the calling of God. So notice that Paul doesn't pray that God would evacuate them from their suffering or even alleviate their suffering, but rather that through it they would be made worthy. So then this is how Paul This is is what Paul wants the result of their suffering to be. That suffering would not so burden them that they would fall away, but that rather than crushing them, this suffering would suit them for the eternal presence of God. So this is Paul's first request for their immediate situation, that that God would make them worthy of his calling. His second request for their immediate need is that God would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. That God would fulfill every resolve for good. So Paul prays that God, by his power, might bring to fruition each Christian's good, faith-prompted purposes. The significance of this phrase lies in the fact that God by his power, 
is the one who completes our good intentions. Now, the very idea that we would have good intentions at all or faith-prompted works to begin with is worth noticing. God renews the heart of the Christian such that desires to honor him come about. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Good intentions are from the Lord. But really what Paul is praying here is that God would bring good intentions to fruition. I wonder what good works they had resolved to do. I wonder what kind of faith-prompted purposes they had in mind. No doubt, not much different than your own. We have good intentions, don't we? We often find a desire to do right. I may intend to steward my body and my diet in a way that's really appropriate for someone who belongs to God. I might determine to remain unspotted by pornography this week. Or I intend to devote time to reading God's word this week. And I intend to practice the prayers of Paul like we've been talking about for these several weeks now. I intend to faithfully pray for that person I said I would pray for. And oh yeah, the next time I talk with this person who always makes me angry, I resolve not to be angry next time I talk with them. We have good intentions, certainly. But the experience common to man is that good intentions often get carried out with the trash each week. They fall flat. We are ineffective. What we need is for God to bring to fruition our desire and capacity for good. In fact, just in this short letter, 2 Thessalonians, Paul seems concerned to remind them of this multiple times. So look at chapter 2, verse 17. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. Where Paul says to them, kind of in another prayer for them, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Jesus establishes our good works. Jesus makes our good works a reality. And then notice in chapter 3, beginning of chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says with confidence, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Not only will Jesus make our good works a reality, but the Lord guards against the evil one. When our good intentions come under attack, we need backup. When we desire to do right, evil is close at hand. Good intentions need serious help and assistance. And this is exactly what God gives. He gives backup. He guards against the evil one. When we intend to do right, inevitably, the devil dispatches his minions. As soon as our good intentions pop up, it's like the hounds are released and the devil is on the hunt to put to death our desires to do right. So this prayer that Paul prays for them is like spiritual weaponry. He calls on God to establish their good works, to guard against the evil one. This is Paul wielding his spiritual weaponry. He has wielded his sword against the enemy, called on God to establish their good works and guard their faith-prompted purposes. 
We should do the same. We should fight for one another by the power of God. What good intentions are you aware of in this body? Every time that someone mentions to you some resolve for good that they have, some faith-prompted resolve, you should take note of it and pray that God would guard it and bring it to fruition. So, for instance, one of the guys in our small group told us that he has a non-Christian roommate and that he wants to live distinctly as a Christian and share the gospel with his roommate. Well, I I want to pray that God would establish his resolve in those things, that God would bring it to pass. There's another man in this body who is hosting a weekly time in his office uh, to discuss a Christian book with those who are not Christian, just maybe wondering what Christianity is all about. Well, in preparing this sermon, I was convicted that I ought to be praying for him, that God would make his efforts fruitful, that God would establish him in that good work. Wives, pray for your husbands in this way. You, know, you may be discouraged over some apparent indifference towards you or towards things of the faith, but rather than discouragement, take heart and renew your commitment in prayer that God would establish even the smallest of your husband's good intentions. Commit these things into the Lord's hands. Members of Christ's covenant, Pray for the leadership of this church. Pray that God would establish those faith-prompted visions, the the decisions that are made, the way the church is led. Pray that God would bring it all to pass, that we might be a church full of good works, that the leadership might be effective in cultivating good works, that we as a body might just be full of this kind of stuff that's happening as as it's fueled by one another's prayers. And as you're praying for one another, especially as you're praying for those who are going through some hardship, some discouragement, pray that God would bring to fruition those things that are born of faith, those things that are prompted by an intention to do right. So these these two requests then, these, these are the requests that Paul mentions for the immediate situation. In the midst of their suffering, he says, God... Make them worthy of your calling. And by your power, establish their good intentions, their faith-prompted resolve. His requests are immediate. But notice a second aspect of Paul's prayer. While his specific requests are related to their immediate situation, Paul's vision is eternal. So secondly, Paul's vision is eternal. So notice in verse 12 the reason that Paul prays for them. Here is his vision in these requests that he has mentioned. Verse 12, So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Paul wants the glory of Jesus. He shares the heartbeat of John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. As Soren Kierkegaard put it, the purity of heart is to will one thing and that one thing is the glory of Christ. This is what Paul wants, the glory of Jesus. 
This is an eternal vision. In all things and for all time, may the name of the Lord Jesus be glorified in you. The goal of being made worthy of His calling, the goal of every good work, faith-prompted resolve being established, the goal of all this is that Jesus would be glorified, that we might exalt Jesus in all that we do. Of course, in reality, and no doubt, the reason Paul felt compelled to pray in this way for them is that we know our hearts to be a bundle of wayward motivations that seem impossible to rein in. How often have you found that even in your best intentions, you are inwardly marked by selfishness? You undertake some legitimate form of service. Perhaps in the church you agree to some position of ministry. Or in some personal relationship you offer help. Maybe you you even bend over backwards to offer encouragement. And yet you find that lurking about, even in your best intentions, is this nasty little creature named selfish ambition. And you find this nasty little creature to be so elusive that you cannot crush him. Selfish ambition is sneaky, right? Paul's prayer here is that the creature would be crushed. That selfish ambition would be ruined. That in acts of Christian service, not the Christian would be exalted, but that Christ would be honored. So Paul has prayed that they would be made worthy and that their good works would flourish, not so that they would be thought of as shining examples of Christian service, but so that Jesus would be seen as great. James Denny said, No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. These desires are at odds with one another. What Paul is praying for here then is a singular aim and motivation. They might be aimed at the glory of Jesus. This is how he prays for them. This is how we should pray for one another. That as others serve, as you, as you see others in this body serving in a variety of ways, pray for them specifically that their intentions would be aimed at the glory of Jesus. They would be motivated by wanting to see Christ exalted. Pray that they would serve out of a deep awareness that they have been served by God giving them Christ. That just as Jesus giving His life was a demonstration of God's love, Pray for the servant in this church that they would serve as a demonstration of God's love also. Not with a view towards self-promotion. Not with selfish ambition. We should pray for one another in this way. Ask that God might cause you to serve like this. With the purity of heart to will one thing. The glory of Jesus. You know, you, you may be aware in some act of service, maybe you can even think of something you've done in the past week, that you have a 60-40 mix of motivations, or 80-20, or maybe even 90-10, and yet you know that no matter how small it is, selfish motivation is there. It must be. You know, the root of sin is always with us. Don't wait around for perfect motives in order to do good and obey. 
Rather, as you do good, as you walk in obedience, pray that the Spirit would cultivate in you a desire to see Jesus magnified. And that the Spirit would sap the strength out of selfish ambition. As you serve, pray this way. Don't let service be precluded by selfish ambition, but pray that selfish ambition would be put to death as you serve. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. So he prays that Jesus would be glorified in them. But then he prays something a bit more unexpected. He prays that they would be glorified in him. So look again at verse 12. It says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you in him. So he prays not only for Jesus to be glorified. But also for believers to be glorified. Glorified. Now, this may seem at first to undermine all we've just said. Having praised Jesus, are we now encouraged to reserve a little praise for ourselves? Or what exactly is Paul saying here? Well, here's what I think he means. When he prays that the believer would be glorified in Jesus, I think he's looking off toward the eternal destiny of the believer. He is asking that God would finish the process of transformation that he's begun for every believer. So in Romans 8, Romans 8, Paul explains this very thing when he says that everyone whom God has predestined or chosen, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified or declared righteous. And those whom he justified, declared righteous, he also glorified. For every Christian, that is every person whom God has chosen to declare righteous, that person will be glorified, will be made into something glorious as the end of this process of what God is doing in choosing and calling and declaring righteous and eventually glorifying. God will finally complete the transformation process, be made into something glorious. That glorification stands off in the future. It awaits the Christian at some time in the future. And yet, even now, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. We're being transformed. It's happening. The process that will end in final glorification is happening in us Now, one author explained it this way. He says, kind of in terms of culture shock, he says, our final glorification, off in the future, will see us without taint or spot. All sin and decay purged away, enjoying the bliss of the perfection of God's unshaded presence. But even now, Christians are being transformed from glory to glory. It's as if the most monumental culture shock that entailed by the jump from this world to the next, is being reduced by the preparation of those who will make the leap. So that final transformation process is prefaced by a whole series of many transformations as we become bit by bit more like Christ. This is the believer being glorified in Jesus. It's the process of becoming more like Christ. 
You see, when, when we give glory to Jesus, we give Him something that He deserves. When we give glory to Jesus, we glorify Him because of who He is in His perfections. Not so with us. When Jesus glorifies us, it's all about what He's making us into. It's all about this process that He is completing in us. He deserves glory. There is nothing in us that is worthy of it. The distinction couldn't be more obvious. Consider Jesus, the man presented to us in the Gospels. He had every good intention. And he fulfilled every good intention. In the midst of temptation and suffering, Jesus was flawless. We are so different. We find good intentions hard to come by. And even when we have them, we find them even harder to carry out. You know, most of the jots on the timeline of our lives are disappointment, failure, discouragement. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses against him, has given us life in Christ. Has offered us the flawlessness of Christ. Something that we cannot have in ourselves, we can have in Christ. Something we could never achieve Despite our best intentions, Christ has achieved and God has extended the offer to us of Christ's achievement, of His flawlessness. So the fact that we might be glorified in Jesus absolutely destroys any possibility for our self-salvation projects. Such that you can't listen to this sermon or any other sermon or read the Bible and walk away thinking of all that you have to do in order to please God. You have to walk away thinking of all that Jesus has done to please God. So of course, you know, we, we work. We want to be motivated by the glory of Jesus. We want good intentions and we want to fulfill good intentions and we work towards that end. We want to look more like Christ and we should strive for that. But when it comes to our eternal hope, we rest. We rest in Christ. We accept His flawlessness because we cannot have it. We cannot achieve it in and of ourselves, so we take His. This is is what we hope in and this is what we look forward to in the future. You know, on that day, that day off in the future which Paul always has on his mind when he prays for Christians. On that day, when the transformation process is complete, it will be the culmination not of your works. It will be the culmination of God's works. It will be the culmination of His intentions for you, not your good intentions coming to pass. So as Paul prays for these Christians, 
he acknowledges this with a vision that is eternal. That Jesus would be glorified in them and they in him. He prays that Jesus would receive all the glory and at the same time considers the eternal destiny of these believers. One other aspect of Paul's prayers for us to notice. His requests are immediate. His vision is eternal. And third, Paul's confidence is God's kindness. Paul's confidence is God's kindness. So, Notice the final phrase there in verse 12 where Paul prays these things according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays according to the grace of God. Don't underestimate the significance of this phrase in regards to the prayer as a whole. He has he prayed that God would make them worthy of his calling that God would establish their good intentions, that God would do all of this so that Jesus would be glorified in them and they in him. And he bases all of this, he, he grounds his prayer in this grace of God. So don't underestimate the significance of this phrase. It's not a meaningless conclusion. It's not his tagline. It's not just signing off at the end of an email. This, this grace of God, God's kindness is the grounds, the foundation on which Paul has constructed his requests. What right do we have to ask that God would make us worthy? In our best efforts, we are not worthy. We offend him in all we do. And yet Paul prays, God, make them worthy. And give consideration, even, even to their good intentions. Paul asks God, for unthinkable generosity towards these Christians. Do you see how this prayer could only be prayed by someone who grasps the goodness of God and prays according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ? One of my greatest struggles in prayer is cynicism. I begin to pray And I find that even as thoughts form in my mind or words form on my lips, I often find a a storm of cynicism brewing in my mind. You know, I think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm praying this, but if this happens, how will I know that the prayer caused it? How will I know that this prayer was effective? Maybe it just would have happened over the course of time anyways. Or maybe I'm praying for strength for spiritual growth or to do, as Paul says here, you know, for some good intention to be accomplished. But then as I'm praying this for this spiritual growth, I begin to think that perhaps my praying is forming a, you know, some kind of self-determination in my mind. And that self-determination then is going to lead me to accomplish the very thing I'm praying for. And then it, Immediately I think, aha, see, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's all it is. And prayer is not effective. I'm just kind of accomplishing the very thing I'm determined to do. I often struggle with this kind of cynicism in my mind. And perhaps you can relate to this. This cynicism is crippling to prayer. Well, speaking of this 
difficulty and, and the frustration that many Christians have in regards to cynicism, Paul Miller, in his excellent book, A Praying Life, which is available in the back afterwards if you want to buy it, gives this excellent illustration. He says, let's, let's imagine that you see a prayer therapist to get your life, your prayer life straightened out. The therapist says, let's begin by looking at your relationship with your heavenly father. You know, God said, I will be to you a father and you shall be to me sons and daughters. What does it mean that you are son or daughter of God? You reply to the therapist that it means you have complete access to your heavenly father through Jesus. You have true intimacy based not on how good you are, but on the goodness of Jesus. Not only that, Jesus is your brother. You are a fellow heir with him. The therapist smiles at you and says, that's right, you've done a wonderful job describing the goodness of God and the doctrine of sonship. Now tell me, what is it like for you to be with your father? What is it like for you to talk with him? Well, now you cautiously tell the therapist how difficult it is for you to be in your father's presence, even for a couple minutes. Your mind wanders. You aren't sure what to say. You wonder, does prayer make any difference? Is God even there? Then you feel guilty for your doubts and just give up. Your therapist looks at you and tells you what you already suspect. Your relationship with your Heavenly Father is dysfunctional. You talk as if you have an intimate relationship with Him, but you don't. Theoretically, it's close. Practically, it is distant. You need help, he says. We do need help. And considering the goodness of God, praying according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, is part of the help that we need. Our prayers must be prayed according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We must mentally lay hold of God's goodness as we pray. As we pray, we must mentally grab on to that fact. God, you are good. You have given me Christ, and so I know of your goodness. And if you are good, and if you are a father, then you must hear my prayers, and you must respond to my prayers. If you exist, and if you are good, then surely you reward those who diligently seek you. Whoever would draw near to God must believe this, that he exists, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. This is Paul's only confidence. It is the only possible confidence that we could have in praying to the Father, that he is good, that he rewards those who diligently seek him, as any father would. I think in prayer, we all too often treat God like an acquaintance. Hello, thank you, after you please, have a good night. We don't treat him as an intimate father. We don't fellowship with him in the way that a father and a child would fellowship with one another. 
But if we are to pray as Paul does, according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, then we should constantly recall to our minds as we pray the goodness of God displayed in Jesus Christ, delivered to us every day. This is our confidence as we pray for ourselves and for others. We, we pray according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's vision is eternal. Paul's requests are immediate. And Paul's confidence is God's kindness. So how can you put feet on this this week? First, take some time for silent prayer this week. Take some time just for silent prayer this week. America must be one of the worst places in the world to live a praying life, as Paul Miller says. Because in our Henry Ford society, we value production and achievement. But prayer is silence and dependence. Hell hates silence. C.S. Lewis said, hell is a kingdom of noise. So fight back against hell this week and take some time for silence. Silence everything and take some time for humble stillness before God. Plan for this. Plan even right now. Think of a time this week that you will do it. Plan some time for silence this week. Second, when you take time for silent prayer this week, when you take that time of silence, let me encourage you to think of um, one or maybe a couple people or a family in the church that you know is going through suffering. So think of someone in this body who you know is going through suffering. And commit yourself in the coming week to target that person for prayer. Pray 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12 for that person. Pray not merely that God would alleviate their suffering. That would be too small a thing. No, pray that God would redeem their suffering. That he would actually employ their suffering in the process of preparing them for heaven. Pray for that person this week. And then perhaps get together with them over coffee or over a meal and encourage them in the grace of God. Let them know that you've been praying for them and encourage them with how you have been praying for them. Remind them of God's goodness to them. Church, we are the called out ones in Christ. What are we doing with that calling? Can you envision a scenario where we all are praying that every good work that God puts into our minds, every good intention that God brings to pass, that they would all be accomplished, where we as a body would be praying that all faith-prompted efforts among us would come to pass, that all the things that we embark on as a church, that God would bring them to fruition, that God would establish our good intentions. Can you imagine a situation for us where the devil does not frustrate our faith, where he does not hinder our good intentions, but rather we see God guarding our good intentions. Can you envision that scenario? Hear the words of the Lord Jesus as he spoke to his disciples. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, 
He will give it to you. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Brothers and sisters, our joy may be full. Go to the Father and ask that you may receive. Employ these prayers of Paul in the name of Jesus and wait on the Father in whose goodness to bring it to pass. Let's pray.